give you all a warm welcome to our service tonight. We'll begin by singing Psalm 67 from Sing Psalms, and the tune is Blaine Warren. God, be merciful and bless us, shine upon us with your face, that the earth may know your actions and all lands your saving grace. We'll stand and sing the psalm. us to be here. We pray that you would meet with us, that you would bless us. It's good if we are coming empty-handed, because that means there's more than that we can carry away. We pray, Lord, that we would see the importance of coming to you empty in order for you to fill us. There are many things that we can take with us, even into your presence, all kinds of baggage. But we thank you, Lord, that there are also many things that we can take from you, things that are, that are provided in your salvation. And we just ask that we would have uh, our hearts filled by you, as, as we meet here. We give you thanks that you have indicated that if we open our mouth wide, uh, that you would fill it. If somebody said, you didn't say if we half open it, you would half fill it. And therefore we pray that we would have a certain degree of expectancy as we uh, draw near to you. We know, Lord, that we know very little about you as far as your uh, fullness is concerned. But we thank you that what you've told us is more than enough. And you have revealed to us that you are our creator and you are our savior, that you are the provider of grace and you are the one who is willing to lead us through life and not only be our God throughout the various years that we're here, but as the psalmist said, that this God can be our God forever and ever. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, when we think about that endless experience, that throughout it all, you, would all, you will always have in abundance to give to us out of your resources, 
whether it's peace or love or joy or satisfaction or help of whatever kind, uh, we thank you, Lord, that there's always plenty with you. As uh, another psalm reminds us, there's plenteous redemption with you. And that redemption that you have arranged is more than sufficient for all of us, and not just for all of us, but for everyone that's in the world. And as we think of the world t today, uh, with all its needs and all its problems and seemingly uh, bigger ones coming on the horizon, uh, it's good for us to be able to say with truth that our help is in the Lord who made heaven and earth. And we thank you that you are the God to whom we can go for protection and for whatever else we need. Uh, we realize that we live in difficult times, um, difficult times in many ways. It's difficult uh, in the current problems that we're facing in our society as we see all the energy issues and the possibility of um, drought and uh, the food supply decreasing and it's something surprising for us to have but we have to remind ourselves that these are the conditions that many people in the world live in all the time. And we are facing them at present, and we don't have any obvious solutions, as seems to be the case. But we know there's other difficulties too, that the spiritual um, temperature of our society is very low. And we have left, to a large extent, the heritage of our ancestors. Uh, we have turned away from our Christian background, and there's not much sign that, that things are changing back. And therefore, Lord, we come to you in this situation, uh, and we ask you in your mercy to... Um, return to us. And we pray that that return would even start today. And that in every place where your people are gathered, that you would work in them so that in this coming week you could work through them. And we just ask, Lord, that that would happen and that it would happen to us. It's hard to imagine how you could work through us uh, until you actually work in us. And therefore, Lord, we do pray as we gather here around your word that you would be working within us, working in our hearts and in our minds, and so that we would be dedicating ourselves to you, and that having dedicated ourselves, then you could work uh, through us. We thank you that once you begin to work through us, there's no real limit to what you could do. And therefore, Lord, help us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, that we would, as Paul said when he's writing to the Romans, he's, when he beseeched them to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, which he described as their reasonable service. And when we think about your mercy, we can see many reasons why it would be a reasonable response. So help us, Lord, to dedicate ourselves to you. Uh, perhaps we look at ourselves and see that we, were, we are not as dedicated today as we used to be. It's only ourselves that know that. And therefore, we ask, Lord, if that's the case, 
that we would be rededicating ourselves and just saying to you, use me, O Lord. It's easy to imagine you using others, but it's important for each of us to say, use me. And we just ask, Lord, that you would uh, use us. We pray again for the, your church throughout the world. We think of this persecuted church, and it's hard for us to imagine what they're going through. We pray, Lord, that you would help them all. Uh, the, the constancy of it, every day is the same in a sense for them, that they face uh, trouble and um, perhaps worse than just trouble. We just ask you, Lord, to remember uh, your cause throughout the world. Uh, we pray too for your church who are existing in difficult circumstances. It may not be those caused by persecution, but there's all other kinds of difficult circumstances. Pray for them where they're living in countries which are very poor and where there's great need. And we just ask, Lord, that you would help those who are trying to bring help to them. We remember our own society, Lord. We remember the situation in the sky, and we just ask that you would um, help all those who have been uh, affected by this and in many different ways, and we just pray that your presence uh, would be help would be present to them and that you would help all involved. We realize that there are many similar things taking place throughout the world where sudden tragedies and troubles occur. <clears throat> a reminder to us that we live in a sad world and we just pray that for those who are in distress <clears throat> and who are confused and baffled that they would be able to turn to yourself. So Lord, we just pray for such that you would remember them and be with them. There are many other things that we should pray about, but we thank you, Lord, that you know our hearts, and we pray that you would answer all our prayers far above what we can ask or think. For we ask them in the name of Christ. Amen. We can now sing Psalm 15 in the Sing Psalms, and the tune is Irish. Lord, who may stay within your tent, your sacred dwelling place, and who upon your holy hill may live before your face? We'll stand and sing the whole psalm.
to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 18. And we can read verses 18 to 30. And the ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And may God bless that reading. We can now sing from Psalm 107 in the Scottish Psalter. We'll sing verses 1 to 9. The tune is Newington. Maybe you don't know this, but maybe it won't make much difference, but apparently Newington was McShane's favorite tune. So um, we'll sing verses 1 to 9. Praise God, for he is good, for still his mercies lasting be. Let God's redeemed say so, whom he from the enemy's hand did free. Verses 1 to 9, and we'll stand to sing. Praise God, for he is good, for still his mercy is Yeah. 
Well, we can turn back to the passage we read there in Luke chapter 18. Uh, This incident of the the rich ruler who approached Jesus, and the story is told in Matthew and Mark as well. And each one of them gives um, different aspects to the occasion. We wouldn't know, as far as I remember correctly, we wouldn't know from this account in Luke that the man was young. But the other Gospels tell us that. So it's become known as the rich young ruler. The different writers in the Bible have their own way of doing it. And um, one of the features of Luke is that he uses contrasts. And whenever we finish one uh, incident, we're to look at the next one and see if there are any contrasts. And the incident prior to uh, this one involves children. And we can contrast the response of the disciples. They didn't want the children to come to Jesus. Whereas here, they got no objection to the rich young ruler. But, on the other hand, Jesus welcomed the children in the previous incident. But, but his response to the rich young ruler, well, it's, it's not exactly what you call a warm welcome. Although I'm sure in the Savior's heart there was great affection for him. But it's obvious from the interaction that they had that Things were not made easy for the rich young ruler. And thinking about the rich young ruler, we may assume from the question where Jesus says it's harder, it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to be converted. We might say, well, that's the end of that. But then, just a couple of paragraphs later, who do we read about? Zacchaeus. The start of chapter 19. And there's a contrast. So he follows this story of the rich young man who rejected Christ by two stories, one of a poor man and one of a rich man who embraced Christ. So it's useful to read in the Gospel of Luke just to look for contrasts, to see what's coming next. And each person, each of the writers has got their own style and so on. Sometimes when we read uh, an incident in the Bible, maybe a statement might come to mind. I'll tell you the one that came to my mind when I read this one, about the rich young ruler. It's the statement of Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. There's almost a sense, I don't know, when Jim Elliot made that statement. Maybe it was after reading this incident, who knows? But it is true, isn't it? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Another thought that came to mind as I was reading this particular story 
cost of following Jesus is high. The cost of not following him is higher. The cost of following him is everything. The cost of not following him is to lose everything. And that's quite stark, isn't it? I just want us to think about three or four things. Um, The ruler, what do we make of him? And then secondly, the Savior and the law. Why does Jesus go on about the commandments? And then thirdly, the dilemma that arises. And a few comments about the recompense that Jesus promises. And then some lessons from the incident. So the ruler. Well, he was a, an eager man, because Mark tells us that he came running to Jesus. He was obviously determined to find the answer to his question. And Mark also tells us that he fell at Jesus' feet. So everything about him looks great, doesn't it? He's uh, really enthusiastic. You can imagine the disciples saying to one another, this is just the kind of convert we want. I mean, as far as I can remember, very few political rulers have indicated any interest in Jesus at all. The only other one we know about is Joseph of Arimathea. And he was a secret disciple at this stage. I mean, Jairus was a ruler, but he was a ruler ruler in the synagogue. But here's a political ruler. A man, we might say, with clout. Wouldn't it be wonderful if he became a disciple of Jesus? He seemed the ideal convert. And of course, this question that he asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's got certain promising aspects to it, doesn't it? I mean, he is interested in eternal life. I mean, that's what he asks about. And he doesn't believe that eternal life is automatic. Because he asks, what must I do to get it? If he believed it was automatic, then it wouldn't be a problem. Just wait and get it. But that's not what he thinks. He knows it's not automatic. He also, going by his question, believes that, that Jesus can help him get it. What must I do to have eternal life? And he also believes it's possible for him to have it. So it's, uh, this ruler certainly seems, uh, well, just the kind of person we're looking for, doesn't it? Imagine his disciples saying that. He's got the right posture. He's very eager. He seems to ask the right question. But when we think about it, it's not a right question. But still, as we look at it, there's an obvious flaw, two obvious flaws, isn't there, in this question. One is, he didn't rate Jesus high enough. And the other one is, he didn't rate himself low enough. He gave to Jesus a certain level, 
which Jesus picks up on. And he gave to himself a very high level. He didn't say to Jesus, can you give me eternal life? Instead, he said to Jesus, tell me what I should do to work eternal life. Imagine saying to Jesus, this is what he basically said, I want to be my own savior. How do we expect Jesus to answer such a question? Imagine if you said it to him. I want to be my own savior. But in a short time, he's going to go to the cross to be the savior. This man, whatever his eagerness, and whatever his curiosity about eternal life, he doesn't see any connection to what Jesus had been saying about his suffering. And it is interesting that immediately after this man heads off, Jesus reminds his disciples that he's going to suffer. Just in case they had lost the point. So the ruler, well, he's not what he seems to be initially, is he? But then there's the response of Jesus. What Jesus says to him there in verses 19 to 23. And as we look at the response of Jesus, we can basically see that he asks the man three things. He asks them, what do you think about me, says Jesus? That's the first thing he asks. And the second thing he asks is, what do you think about God? And the third thing he asks is, what do you think about the Ten Commandments? Why did he ask him, what do you think about me? Because it's connected to the word good. And Jesus himself picks up on that. Why do you call me good? I mean, apparently it was the custom that nobody ever said to a rabbi, you're good. And the reason why they didn't say it to a rabbi is because the word good was reserved for God. So we can see immediately why Jesus asked the question, you're calling me good. Do you believe that I am God? Now, of course, Jesus himself had described himself as good before, hadn't he? And sometimes we miss the point that he's making. He has said there, that when he was talking about himself being a shepherd, he said, I'm the good shepherd. I mean, good is connected to God. And the people got the point he was making. I'm the divine shepherd. I'm the one who's described in Psalm 23, and so on. And here in this particular incident is the rich young ruler regarding Jesus as divine. Because that's the question that Jesus asks him. Why are you calling me good? And, and linked to that, is, do you think God is good? Because Jesus says that too. No one is good except God alone. As you talk about God, Jesus is saying to this rich young ruler, what are you thinking about him? What's going through your mind as you talk about the Most High? Do you really think he is good? What do you think the man was asking? 
when he asked his question. I mean, how do you read it? Good teacher, what must I do to, in, to inherit eternal life? Is this a genuine question? And then Jesus asked them, what do you think of the Ten Commandments? It's a rather curious response from Jesus, isn't it? The man has asked, of course, what can I do to get into eternal life? Well, how does one get eternal life? There's only two possible options. You either get eternal life as a gift from Jesus or you get eternal life by obeying God's law. These are the only two options. If Adam in the Garden of Eden had kept God's law, he would have got eternal life. This man is wanting to do something to get it and Jesus is telling him the only way he can get it by doing something. The only way he can get it by doing is to keep the law perfectly. And Jesus highlights some of the commandments, the ones that are kind of visible. He says to the, the man, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Well, everybody could see whether or not he was doing that. And the man himself comes up with the answer, doesn't he? Well, all these I have kept from my youth. He understands what the commandments are and he regards himself as blameless. And we shouldn't be too surprised at that. I mean, there's somebody else in the New Testament who thought exactly the same way. And we know who that was, don't we? Saul of Tarsus. He said there in Philippians chapter 3 that with regard to his Conformity to God's law. He was blameless. Not in the sense of being perfect. But in the sense that nobody could point the finger at him. And say to him, you've done this. And you've done that. And you've done the next thing. And here's this rich young ruler. And he is fully convinced. That no one can point the finger at him externally. But how are they going to deal with this? How is Jesus going to respond to a man standing in front of him who's claiming to have done nothing wrong? And we see what Jesus does, don't we? He tells him there, as we can see down in verse 22, one thing you still lack. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Jesus puts his finger, we might say, where the man's heart is. He basically says to him, you need to have an order of priority. The order of priority that you should have, says Jesus, is me first, others second, and yourself last. Is that not what Jesus says to him? Sell all you have and give it the proceeds to the poor. And then come and follow me. The order seems quite obvious, doesn't it? 
Jesus first, others second, yourself last. And this requirement from Jesus is not limited to the rich young ruler. The problem with the rich young ruler, as Jesus identifies by this simple question, or this simple instruction, to sell what he has and give to the poor and come follow me, is to get rid of what's stopping you following me. And we can see from the man's response that Jesus had hit home, hadn't he? This man, this man's problem was not what he thought of his outward behavior. Because he may have been living in a life that no one could find fault with. The problem was, while he may have kept the sixth and the seventh and the eighth commandments and the fifth, he had disobeyed the first. The first commandment was to love the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his soul and all his strength, and his neighbor as himself. And he hadn't loved God. And he hadn't loved his neighbor. He hadn't loved his neighbor as himself, had he? And Jesus therefore identified the problem that was in his heart. You know, and that's what he says to us as well. What's in your heart? I read this statement by Augustine. I don't know what you think of it. But he said, My heart towards God is a flame of fire. My heart towards others is a heart of love. My heart towards myself is a heart of steel. He got the point, didn't he? But this man had the whole thing the wrong way round. Because the God-shaped vacuum in his heart was filled by himself, there was no space for anyone else. Not even for God. And this man tells us something. He tells us it's not external things that keep us out of the kingdom. It's internal. Where's his heart? Where is our heart? Because that's the things that will keep us out of the kingdom. This man, we might say, had something he really cherished. Something that came in his assessment of things as high above God. And that was his wealth. And there was no way, even after getting an instruction from Jesus, there was no way he was going to give up his idol. He'd rather have his idol than God. This was his sin. Calvin calls it his darling vice. And he says about it, it's hard to part with a darling vice. Indeed, he says, the only thing that will make us part with it is if we taste the sweetness of the grace of Christ. And this man here, he's standing in front of Jesus. 
but he doesn't want any of the sweetness of Christ. Instead, he wants to test his own abilities. Heart sins. We miss the point if we think the application here is Jesus' advice to rich people. That's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is Jesus' advice to people who break the first commandment. Who have something in their heart in the place that only God should be. And that's why Jesus doesn't welcome them. This man's heart is not full of God or full of Jesus. Even if he gives to Jesus this title that nobody else has given to him, this man is far away from God, even although he's wanting eternal life. So that's the Savior and the law. The commandments that we have to focus on are not just the ones that we find easy to keep. The commandments we have to focus on is all of them. And especially the first is God number one. Because if he's not, There's no eternal life for someone who doesn't think that. And then there's the dilemma explained there in verses 24 to 26. I mean, of course, this this, um, encounter was bewildering to the disciples. I I mean, here was their master going out of his way to make things difficult for this would-be disciple. I mean, what is he doing? Well, what is Jesus doing here? Well, he's instructing his disciples. I mean, they're on this three-year course of learning how to serve him for the rest of their lives. And what are they to do when a nice, self-righteous person comes along. What are they to do when a nice self-righteous person comes along? Are they to say to him, just carry on the way you're doing? Of course not. When such a nice self-righteous person comes along, they have to speak to him the way Jesus spoke to this rich young man and aim to get the nice, self-righteous person to see that his niceness gets him nowhere in God's sight. And of course that, and Jesus goes on to say, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Of course, we have to be careful we don't take the wrong deduction from that. Because it's also the case that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a poor man to enter the kingdom of God. But the poor man doesn't have the baggage that the rich man has. And the problem with camels, of course, is that they're always carrying a lot of baggage. But a camel to go through the eye of a needle is impossible. And it covers both rich and poor. But not everybody's got the same baggage that keeps them out of the kingdom. The poor have their own issues, but the rich have theirs. And Jesus just says, and it's something a disciple should have known. They shouldn't have asked this question. The disciples have been told the answer to this numerous times. How is a person saved? Who brings it about? 
God. With men this is impossible, but it's possible with God. So it doesn't matter who the person is. They may like this rich, cultured, civil uh, ruler. They might look closer to the kingdom, but they're not closer. And unless God works in their heart, as it was with this man, they just remain in spiritual darkness. And this man just chose to leave Jesus. He went away sad. And we can see that the Savior was sad as well. A sad result to a sad approach to the Savior. Peter, of course, was always quick to spot something. And he spotted here that he was, he and the disciples had done what this rich young ruler had not done. And he says to Jesus, what are we going to get? We've given up everything for you. In our, we've left our boats in the Sea of Galilee and we've left our houses what are we going to get? And Jesus answers him, and there in verse 20, 29, he's not talking about every Christian, every disciple. He's actually talking there in verse 29 about those who actually dedicate their lives to him in circumstances that mean they have to give up the prospects of a family, and so on. But he says, when that does happen, the things will be made up for you, and you'll get everything you need for this life. But in contrast to the rich young ruler, you'll get what he didn't get, which is eternal life. He wasn't prepared to serve he doesn't get eternal life. You've left everything and followed me, he says to them. That's true enough. But just think of this. After you serve me, whatever I send you, whatever price you have to pay for it, at the end, you get eternal life. And is that not the right perspective? I just want to see some lessons from this incident as we close. The first one is, it's not enough to say nice things about Jesus. This man came, and it looks as if he had prepared this little question. What will I say to him when I come up with my question? I'll say something nice to him. Well, it's not enough to say nice things about Jesus. Because he can read why it's been said. He knows why it's been said. And this man's use of the word good, I suspect he started pretty soon after he had said it, to wish he had never said it. Why are you calling me good? So the first lesson is, it's not enough to say nice things about Jesus. Because he knows our hearts. The second thing is that following Jesus requires counting the cost. I mean, that's obvious from this incident, isn't it? He's been said to the man, you either live for treasures on earth or for treasures in heaven. The man was given the choice because Jesus said to him, if you sell what you have and give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven. He's given the choice. Somebody once said, 
We're either going from our treasures to heaven or we're going with our treasures away from, away from heaven. And it's true, isn't it? What we value most will indicate where we're going. This man, he wasn't going to heaven despite his question. Third thing is, one can have a talk with Jesus and still be lost, can't they? One can have a talk with Jesus and still be lost. What's the equivalent of having a talk with Jesus? Well, how about thinking about the gospel? Just thinking about the invitations he makes. There's many people who have spent time thinking about the gospel and rejected it. Like this young ruler. He had this conversation with Jesus. But unless he subsequently repented and believed, his talk with Jesus didn't do him any good. And that's a very solemn thing. Another lesson that comes from this, we can perish just for lacking one thing. That's all Jesus says to him, isn't it? One thing you'll still lack. There in verse 22. One thing kept him out of the kingdom. With him, the one thing was his wealth. But it was just one thing. And it's very sad, isn't it? As we look at our own hearts, and is it one thing that's keeping us out of the kingdom? One thing that we won't let go. This man would not let his wealth go. In a couple of paragraphs' time, we come across a man who was quite prepared to let it go. Zacchaeus, who actually said, if I've wronged anybody, I restore him fourfold. So, the one thing kept him out of the kingdom. There's lots of one things that can keep us out what other people think about me can keep us out of the kingdom. My love for certain hobbies could keep us out of the kingdom. The choice of my career, it must come first. Anything. But it is sad if one thing keeps us out of the kingdom. Jesus said to this rich young ruler, you have to identify with me. It's not enough to ask for eternal life. You have to come and follow me. You have to identify with me. When I survey the wondrous cross, how does it end? Requires my soul, my life, my all. good to survey it but it's not enough to survey it we have to give him our all something else about this incident tells us is that Christ is no one's debtor Peter you've given up your boat what does Jesus say to that he says there in verse 30, 
you will receive many times more in this life. You think Peter believed that at that moment? Whether he did or didn't, he did receive many times more. Christ is no one's better, debtor. What people give up for him will seem insignificant to what he gives. I forget who it was who said it, but some missionary said he had never made a sacrifice. And as we looked at his life, there was one sacrifice after another. And the last thing to say is this. What we say to this rich young ruler is really not what are you living for? But who are you living for? This man, the what might be, what must I do to get eternal life? That's his what. And because it was a what, It made a totally wrong question. The real question is not what we are living for. Because if we're living for a what, there's no eternal life. The question is, who are we living for? And are we living for Christ? Only one life. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. This rich young ruler, he thought he kept it all, but he actually lost it all. The disciples lost all from one point of view. Today they've got eternal life. And the same choices apply to us. It's not what do we want, but who do we serve? Shall we pray? Lord, we can tell from the incident that this man was far closer to you physically than any of us are ever going to get as far as this life is concerned. But we now know that if he remained like that, there's now a great gulf between him and you. Lord, help us to learn from his folly that we cannot put anything in place of you and that we can't even have you plus something It must be Christ alone. And help us to, as we look at this man, to look with sadness, but at the same time to realize that Jesus is speaking to us and saying to us, I must be your Lord, and you must live for me. And help us, Lord, to do that. For your own name's sake, amen. We'll conclude by singing from Psalm 119 in the Scottish Psalter, verse 57 to 60. The tune is Babel Streams. Thou my sure portion art alone, which I did choose, O Lord. I have resolved and said, that I would keep thy holy word. We'll stand and sing verses 57 to 60.
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.